everyone. Thank you for listening to episode 18 of the Coach Fury podcast. Um, for those that don't know who I am, don't be shocked. My feelings aren't hurt. My name is Steve, Coach Fury Holliner. I'm a fitness professional and educator based out of the Gowanus area of Brooklyn, New York. I offer personal training, online training, and a big announcement. I'm bringing my Mighty Strong classes to Fury Industries' home base in Gowanus. So stay tuned for more information on that. I also teach for several organizations, uh, DVRT Ultimate Sandbag Training, Original Strength, the RKC, and I'm a mentor in the group Strength Faction on any of those groups. Hey, if you like that metal music, like I do, that plays throughout this podcast, that's my friend's band, the FTW. They got a show coming up at the Kingsland in Brooklyn on February 3rd. Um, the FTW are playing with the Skull, so check that out. And here are some courses I have coming up. The RKC, it's about the last week to sign up for the RKC in Marietta, Georgia with senior RKC Beth Andrews and I. That's the 26th and 28th of January, 26th through the 28th of January. Then we're bringing original strength pressing reset course to Crunch at 59th Street in Manhattan on February 11th. March 18th, my return to MFF Bowery, Mark Fisher Fitness Bowery for the one day HKC kettlebell certification. Join us for that one. The RKC 2 comes back for its second year at Catalyst Sport, May 5th through the 6th. And then I am very excited to go back out to Austin and help keep that place weird with the Original Strength Pressing Reset Workshop at Dow Health and Fitness, my buddy Matt Furman's place on May 19th. And visit coachfury.com for any information on training, whether it be online personal, staying tuned for my class information as that becomes out, as that comes out, and also any of these courses that you might be interested in. Of course, if you have questions or even want to host a course on any of this stuff, please hit me up at coachfury at gmail.com. All that information is on my website as well. And check out the FTW. That's going to be a pisser. Also, I've talked about pedestal footwear here. If you want to get some of the best socks to wear, get that barefoot feel without the barefoot funk, visit pedestalfootwear.com and use the promo code COACHFURY, capital C, capital F, and you'll save 15% off your order. Episode 18 is upon us. This is my friend Barry Danielian, who I met first as I was a member and he was an instructor at Five Points Academy, but I also found he's a very accomplished musician. We're gonna get more into that now. Hey listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Coach Fury podcast. Uh, this is episode 18, and this is somebody that's not only been a friend for a number of years, but was also at the first kettlebell certification, the first fitness certification I ever took. And I'm talking about my friend Barry Danielian. Barry, if you haven't heard his name before, is a world-class musician, a trumpeter. We'll talk about some of the greats that he's worked for. I met him, he was a, uh, or he still is, a, a guru in PKT, Pekiti Terja Kali, at Five Points Academy, and we actually used to swap strength training for Kali training, which I was horrible at, um, but I'm very excited to have them on. I was trying to think of when I met Barry, and I met you prior as a member at Five Points Academy, right. and then I remembered that me, you, and Lance were sort of like the team from the gym that went through that that course. And yeah, the big like, guys. Yeah, like June in 2010. So yeah. Barry, please fill in the blanks. Anything that I might have missed, say hi to the listeners. Hey, listeners. Happy to be here with my friend Coach Fury, and uh, we're going to unfold a lot of things, hopefully, in the next uh, hour and a half or so. 
Yeah, I'm really excited. So it was really cool to think about it. And you mentioned the big guys, because I remember all three of us uh, could press very heavy things, pull very heavy things off the floor with our feet. But when it came to the pull-ups and chin-ups... Pull-ups <laughs> are still like the bane of my existence. It's like the, the quickest evaporating exercise for me. If, if I'm not on it all the time, which I'm not right now, I, I go right back to zero, like immediately. Whereas other lifts, like deadlifts and stuff, even if I slack off, when I get back, I can get pretty close to my, my good numbers relatively quickly, but pull-ups, forget about it. Yeah, I'm the same way. I know when I when I started having these tremors before I figured out that I had Graves' disease this year, like I lost all my strength. But once the, the medicine started getting, you know, my, my thyroid levels sort of balanced out, the pull-ups and chin-ups have been the hardest thing to come back from that. I started getting my presses and my, my you know, my push-ups and all that stuff back. Um, but that has been the biggest struggle. It's, it's, it's such a shame. But I remember me, you, and Lance, like, really training yeah. to, to nail those. Back yeah. in the day, just to pass your HKC, now it's a 60-second plank. But back in the day, you had to do uh, five strict chin-ups or pull-ups. And I think women had a 30-second flex arm hang just for the HKC. Right. Um, but, yeah, so that was a great time to hang out. That was actually probably one of the first times I've ever coached somebody. Um, I remember that event very well. And that is actually also afterwards Lance Turnbow, who, uh, God rest his soul, is no God longer with us. Yeah. Lance, quickly after that, we went out for lunch and got burgers down the block. Um, and he became one of my best friends. Um, you know, so it was like a, a special time, certainly the start of my, my kettlebell future. And I had no idea that I would later go on to travel the world teaching these damn things. Right. Um, so I, I totally it, immediately and think about it. I was like, oh, you know, I was thinking about the martial arts training and how we used to do the swap. But it was that, that kettlebell cert. We were all kettlebell thing. Yeah, that's right. So Barry is one of those guys when, you know, you, you, you meet people at a gym or a facility and uh, you have like a different level of respect for some people where like they're incredibly approachable but you probably uh, we've never actually talked about this Barry like you're somebody that I have a shit ton of respect for but also like I don't know you're somebody that I look up to um you're just very talented in a lot of different areas especially you know I mentioned in, in your intro that you're this world-class trumpeter session musician um but then also this world-class martial artist and not in any sort of like, I don't want to call any martial arts a gimmick, but like you're in a particularly lethal <laughs> martial artist, like a, like a true self-defense. Yeah. Kali, Kali is a different animal. I mean, I think, I think understanding the history of the Philippines and the social dynamic of, of that island, those islands um, over a long period of history um, you start to understand why Kali is the way it is and why it quite hasn't evolved. Like other arts, I think, may have been self-defense or, you know, these guys are coming quickly to our village. We need to be able to protect ourselves. We need to kill them before they kill us type of thing. I think all arts had that at a certain point. And then the social dynamic changes, the political dynamic changes, maybe societies become a little more stabilized and martial arts purely for self-protection or the the warrior or military aspect of it kind of transitions into sport or transitions into uh, a method of self-realization or self-development or self-cultivation and Kali hasn't really made it has on some level but very much it's still about 
this guy's about to attack me. He's armed. He wants to kill me. I have to be able to figure this out. I have to have a toolbox that works. There's no ritual involved. I would say it's really based on the concept of an ambush rather than a duel. And I think a lot of martial arts that we see leaving out of the equation, whether they're effective or not, yeah. but the structure of it is very much duel-like. Whereas with Kali, it's ambush. And that changes your mindset. That changes how you look at things. I remember some of the early days when I was trying it. So I started, uh, listeners, I started at Five Points Academy first to just learn uh, Muay Thai kickboxing before mm -hmm. I ever really, I knew what kettlebells were, but I never, you know, really used one. Um, and I remember seeing like you and Simon uh, or, you know, if Tim would come to visit, getting into these insane uh, stick or knife fights and just being like blown away. By the real time, like you can't even call it choreography because it's not planned out. It's just real time uh, offense and defense, right? And yeah, the, defense yeah, is, yeah. the defense is constantly setting up for the next offense. Yeah. What, what do you think is sort of like um, if someone were thinking about starting a new martial art, um, let's say from a self-defense perspective, what do you think would make, you know, PKT stand out? PTK, sorry, PTK stand out. I think, I think that what makes Kali different and Pekiti in particular different is the presuppositions that it's based on. And so the three main things that it's based on is, is we're assuming they're armed, we're assuming they're trained, and I think you could say trained slash committed, <laughs> and, and three, that there is more than one. It's them and their friends. So we're not in a match, you know, or it's not probably the age that you and I came up in where you had a beef with some dude, you, you, you squared up. And if one guy got the best of you, the friends would jump in. Okay, shake hands, your friends. That guy ends up being your buddy. Like, you know, those days are over. You know, it, it, it really has morphed into something else. So I think Kali is based on that. So right away, if you're thinking, okay, they're armed. That changes everything. And I mean, I can say this from experience because what led me to Filipino martial arts was I had already been boxing for a long time. I'd been doing Muay Thai for a long time. had a background in like traditional karate. I considered myself to be, you know, fairly capable. You know, I'm not like some badass, but if, if my spidey sense doesn't go off enough that I can get out, which is always the first thing that you want to do, just get out of there. I always felt pretty confident. I'm a big guy. I felt pretty confident that I could handle myself. I got into a situation one time where, where a weapon came, came out, and I, and I didn't know what to do. And luckily, I was able to, you know, get out of the situation. But it really, like, it's like, okay, all this training you've been doing all these years, and you saw a weapon, and your whole thing froze. So... What, what does that mean? You know, because you're constantly having to reassess yourself and reassess your tools and reassess what you believe things to be. So I got to the club where I was going to to play a gig, and the doorman was a real experienced martial artist. At that time, Tommy was probably in his late 50s, but he was known amongst the New York doorman scene as one of the most capable guys out there. And you wouldn't know it to look at him, right? Mm -hmm. and so I explained to him what happened. He said, oh, man, where, don't you live in Jersey City? I said, yeah. He says, well, you need to find yourself like a Filipino to teach you Filipino martial arts because you're missing that component. You have to train with weapons in order to understand weapons and be able to, to defend yourself against a weapon. You need weapons training. 
So I would say to, to get back to your question that, you know, you have to have striking, you have to have clinching, you have to have grappling, you have to have weapons, and you have to have firearms, I think, if you're going to be complete in your toolbox of self-protection. So, yeah, you need to have some boxing, you need to have some white tie. I think that those two arts really, like, you can't beat them for getting your striking skills together. I think like BJJ or catch wrestling or just straight up wrestling or Sambo, the judo, there's so many great grappling arts. I think you have to have those tools in your toolbox. I don't agree with the notion that all fights end on the ground, but I do believe that if you, if it goes to the ground and you don't know what you're doing down there, that's like me not knowing all 12 keys. I have to know how to play in all those keys. Yeah, um, And then the weapon component, and I find with weapon-centric arts, and I will include firearms training in that, this combative mindset becomes a more pronounced aspect of the training because it's kind of a given that you're not doing this for sport. You're not learning these things for sport, even though there is sport shooting and there is. But for the most part, people that get into that kind of training, it's really, hey, God forbid something happens where it moves into that lethal realm. I need to know not only how to handle myself, but the, the thought process. I need to know how to deal with my adrenaline. I need to know how to deal with, you know, freaking out. And I need to know how to deal with an ethical framework that will allow me to be able to turn that switch on, knowing that I have a solid ethical basis for use of force and I'm prepared to deal with the consequences which, which may be legal consequences. And that's something that people don't really talk about. You know, you go to martial arts schools and they're training people to be able to potentially do harm to another human being. Never, very rarely is it ever talked about what, what is the legal ramifications? When am I justified in using force? How much force should I use? Blah, 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 blah. That's a whole nother realm. Really, it's the firearm guys that kind of deal with that stuff Martial arts guys generally don't deal with it. You know, we just train people to yeah. do this stuff, but we don't wrap it up in like an ethical slash legal framework. And I think that if you haven't gone through that thought process, that mental process prior, then God forbid when it jumps off, you're going to have second thoughts. You're going to try and make those calculations then, and it's too late. Um I think that was real, a long answer. It was time. great, though. At least I'm nerding out, soaking that up, because it is sort of encapsulating what I, what I saw over, you know, the, my first, like, say, six or seven months of watching what was going down in the class. I didn't take advantage of any Kali training, and I didn't do much of it, folks. Like, I don't want to pretend like I knew what I was doing at all. Um, I went into five points very much with I've never really taken a martial art other than watched – went into film school wanting to make Jackie Chan films, quite frankly. Right. Um, you know, uh, I was a bigger Brandon Lee fan at the time than a Bruce Lee fan. Um, so seeing like, I just wanted to learn Muay Thai. So I'm like, I'm going to focus on this for a few years before right. I even try to think of like adding something, something new into it. But the one thing that, uh, what, what I saw that was, I'd never been around before was this, I, the mindset right? You see, when people take martial arts, you see a level of confidence, both inside and outside of the gym. I know I felt it probably recklessly. So sometimes just thinking like, you know, I could punch or kick somebody like I have a little bit, right. And it also took me a little bit before I started thinking of Muay Thai, uh, how we were learning it as, as ring focused to then, then maybe not quite so like I'm going to get in a street fight now. Right. I didn't have a deeper background. Um, 
And your main focus isn't so much in that, at least for me, it was getting better on the techniques and getting, you know, grading over time and just learning the skill versus like, if I'm walking around on the street, I, I really wasn't looking at it for myself as self-defense. It was like, right. um, I thought it was like a, a super fun, something I wanted to get good at, a great release. And coming off of all of these skateboard injuries and stuff, um, I found it a, a great outlet to, to let out some creative aggression, you know, again, right. my nickname of Fury. Uh, and I was like, you know, average, average to mediocre at it. Like, if I'm going to be honest, uh, I never want anybody to think I was a badass, like average to mediocre. But I remember talking, I think it was to you, actually, we had Grandmaster Tuhan, Leo Tuhan in, right? And you were like, he just gave a workshop. Now, this is, if you can imagine this, senior Filipino gentleman, what is he, maybe five, six in his 80s when he was there? He wasn't a very... Yeah, no, he's not, you know, I mean, he's imposing, but he's not a big man, you know? Yeah. Filipino, they're not very, you know, and he's from the southern Philippines where people tend to be a little, you know, in the north, they're mixed with Chinese more, so you do send... You can see big Chinese. He's probably like five, five, five. Six. Yeah, so he's he's this unassuming. You could almost imagine him almost as like. I mean, he wasn't this old, but like, say the Yoda of the instructors. Like, yeah, he's. I think at that time he was probably seventy six or seventy seven years old. So you know, he would sit behind the desk while he was in between stuff. He'd fall asleep. Somebody would help him out on Facebook. But then you told me how he just gave this workshop and was showing uh, taking people to the floor, yourself included, with a quarter in his hand. Yeah. And, and, and it was just this idea that um, with anything, you know, there's in, in the John Wick movies, which I, I, I love the John Wick movies, yeah, you know, there's always this big, big line about with a fucking pencil, you know, you could do this, took out all these guys with a pencil. And then I always remember you telling me about the quarter. And I remember Simon saying, look at his backpack. He had a carabiner on his backpack. And he's like, do you think he's clipping anything on that carabiner? And he was like, no, that's like in case he gets in a fight, he can actually like hold on to that. And it's like sort yeah. of like legal brass knuckles. I hope yeah, I'm not totally. out on anything. But it was that mindset of, it was the first time I've experienced it in person in a non-gimmicky high school trying to be Rambo way of like literally prepared for anything with like simple, whatever gear he might have in his pockets or in his backpack, ready to go. And do you think that that level of mindset might be why maybe it hasn't taken off the same way as, say, Krav, Krav Maga? Because I know Krav Maga is viewed at as also, like, super intense um, and self-defense oriented. And I know it's different. I'm not trying to lump them in the same categories. But in terms of, like, the more intense, sort of more direct self-defense martial arts I've been exposed to, they seem to have almost same but different cores – but one is like, you know, everybody thinks like, you know, if, if you say name like five martial arts, someone's going to say karate, uh, kung fu, jujitsu, Muay Thai, Krav Maga, whereas Kali tends to fall a little lower on that. And I'm not quite sure. Where do you right. think that happened? Well, I mean, my personal feeling is that doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> it really doesn't. Um, and I also think that it's not for everybody. I think that as much as people talk about oh, I want to learn weapons and I want to learn blade and I want to, like, it, it requires a lot of commitment and a lot of time. It's, it's very sophisticated. It very and, much and, so. Um, e e even though the, the, the tools that you would use or the principles that would likely be deployed are pretty straightforward, you know, but what, what looks straightforward is really the result of a lot of time practicing and, the, and to be able to flow requires, you know, 
it's a pretty sophisticated art. And I think that people get into it and then they're like, oh, wow, this is kind of hard. And, this, you know, a lot of people say it's a thinking man's martial art. And I think that there's truth to that because the, the margin for error basically is non-existent with a weapon. I mean, it is existent, but, it, you, you know, I mean, so, for example, um, I, I could always punch pretty hard. You know, so when I was doing Muay Thai, part of my game was I'd be willing to take a roundhouse kick. I would gambit that I'm going to take the roundhouse kick as I'm trying to get in because once I get in and I can get my combinations and get into my clinch and start kneeing, that I'm going to have such an advantage at that range that I'm, I'm playing that gambit, you know. And I think boxers do the same thing. I think that grapplers, there's a lot of that kind of, you know, I'm going to give him the arm and let him think he's getting the arm bar, but that's really setting up my next thing. I think once you put a, a stick in somebody's hand or a, an edge weapon in somebody's hand, that whole trading blows, that goes right out the window. I mean, people do because we'll put some gear on to be able to spar, um, but Pekiti in particular among Kali really is an edged weapon art. The stick is just there because... It's a safer way to train, maybe, but but in essence, I mean, Tuhangahi is always like, this is a blade art, so we're always thinking blade. So even like some of the disarms and stuff, we don't do that many, but most of the disarms that we do, they're only the ones that you could do with an edged weapon. So a lot of the ones that you see in other systems where they'll grab the other end of the stick, the working end of the stick, and do a disarm, even though they're effective, if I train myself to do that and it's an edged weapon, I just grab the blade. And now that's really not good for me. So that whole edge weapon mentality, and, and uh, it kind of takes the macho out of everything. Yeah. So that requires now that I have to work on my technique, I have to work on my footwork, I have to work on all these things that really are real boring to practice. It was and, interesting. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Continue. No, no I mean, just, and, and those are the things that people don't want to deal with. You know, they don't want to deal with it. Well, hey, look all this standing still and being able to twirl your stick really fast and make all these intricate movements. Yeah. That impresses your friend. But the truth is, is that you're standing still doing it. So it's combatively meaningless. Really. You have to be able to do that while moving and responding to attacks and waving in and waving out and zoning and constantly moving yourself to a better position. That's footwork. And that's the boring shit that nobody wants to practice. And that's the key to making Kali work. Yeah, that I, I was going to say, that was actually the struggle for me. I found it very rewarding in one way, and I found it personally frustrating in myself, like not in the, in the art, in myself. So um, listeners, if you're not familiar, this is, you know, in most martial arts, you start out learning, you know, hand striking, foot striking. Um, in, in PTK, you basically start out with weapons in your hand. That's, that's actually, you're learning your foundations with sticks, um, and, and practice blades like right out the gate and the footwork and the strikes and you know they flow very much so together so it, it's not like there, there's no real um you have progressions but there's no real true baby step like you're kind of learning a lot right out the gate and then there's the subtle differences between fighting with the stick and fighting with the you know with the knife mm-hmm. um that i found fascinating but also, I know for me, like, I, I didn't practice hard enough, too. I mean, that's, that's definitely part of it. I didn't get in enough training. Right. Um, I found it very 
fun to practice on my own. And I think I actually got more frustrated in class when I was just, I couldn't keep up. Um, I'm also just, I'm one of those guys that's not super, uh, if I have to think about my left or my rights, this might sound weird to publicly say, I sometimes get myself confused. If I'm literally thinking fast on my feet, left, right, uh, I, I get lost in that. A lot, a lot of people do. I mean, that's like correcting left and right is like what martial arts teachers <laughs> spend most of their time. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, but it's true, you know. I mean, I hear you, you, you know, I, I think that there's a certain amount of practice that needs to happen just a, to feel comfortable with that weapon in your hand so that weapon becomes an extension of you without thinking it's an it's a extra thing. You know, yeah. and that requires time and the, and the conditioning that it takes just to get your hands. You know, it's like Tuan talks about this rubberized strength because you need to have strength, but it, there has to be flexibility. There's no stiffness, you know, because I don't, because it's a hard piece of stick or it's a sharp piece of metal. So my strength is different. I just really need proper mechanics and speed more than I need strength. Yeah. And it takes kind of sitting with the weapon for a long time to realize that you can't muscle it. And once you realize that, then you kind of start to relax. Similar to what you showed me with kettlebells with like snatches, how once you get the form right, it's really just relaxation and structure that, that gets that weight up there. It's not like brute strength all the time. Yeah, um, it's, it, it, people, people overdo kettlebell swings thinking the entire thing is a full tension exercise, and it's actually just a hinge to a plank with breathing on top. Your, your right. arm and your grip are fairly relaxed, but uh, you know, whether or not that's just you know, what they're seeing in some video or a misinterpretation of what hard style is, hard style in kettlebell land, just like any martial art, is that moments of, of high tension and moments of relaxation. Because if you're going to try to fight somebody, you know, whether with whatever, right, if you're going to throw a punch and you're tense throughout it, you're not going to be quick. You're going right. to, you know, totally give yourself away for it. And you're not going to have any power behind it. Right. Um, you know, you can muscle your way through some clinching and, and to some degree your kicks, but even if you're trying to muscle through kicks, if somebody's quicker than you, they're, you're yeah. telegraphing the whole thing. Yeah, you're never gonna get you're never gonna get the power that you want. The, the power really comes from relaxation and and good mechanics, and um, and you almost have to be broken down to that. Like like you have to be burned out, like so tired that you can only move efficiently. Like your body is so like just just dead, you know. Um, that's another thing about the Kali thing that a lot of people, they don't stay with it long enough to, to learn is that they have a really, the training methodologies are great. You know, like, like the attribute builders, the attribute of timing, the attribute of range. And the weapon really is the thing that helps that because with that stick buzzing by your face, like you're going to move to the right spot. You're going to get out of the way. There's something about having a weapon whizzing by you that, um, kind of keeps you present in a real kind of way that's different you know i think it's interesting aside from the self-defense aspect you know with one of the groups i teach with original strength we talk a lot about you know uh you know contralateral movements and your vestibular system and just you know keeping this level of neuroplasticity in the brain where whenever you're you know really using your left and rights in opposition uh sorry not not just your opposite hips and shoulders um contralaterally like there's these moments where your, your brain is constantly getting refreshed and charged and it, it, it right. keeps it elastic and fluid. And Kali in particular, the level of hand-eye, because you do have not just, you know, fists or feet or elbows coming your way, uh, that you do have these weapons. I mean, it's shocking how quickly things are happening um, 
when they're happening. I, I don't know if it's because it's a, a longer lever arm because there's leverage behind them on some of these things, sometimes not so much longer. Like, I think that's a cool long-term uh, psychological health self-preservation thing than just the actual right. uh, self-defense aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting because it's so much like jazz. It's so much like improvising, you know, like being in that moment and having to respond to what's happening right now that you don't really know what's happening. You're having to constantly adjust and you're using a set of principles, but how those principles will express themselves combatively in the moment, you can't really predict that, you know, because things are changing all the time. So that kind of aspect of, of your mind being able to be in the moment and being able to flow, it's very similar to improvising because like, you know, you have to practice all these scales and all these chords and all this stuff and, you have to get it down to the point where it's instinctual. But then the minute you go out on stage and, and you're ready to start playing, it's like you have no idea what's going to happen until it happens. And then you have to respond to it. And you have to respond with other people in, in a way that it sounds like you're making music together. And so I think that whatever part of the brain or whatever parts of the brain that that's accessing, I think martial arts in the, in that, in the sense that we're talking about accesses that same part of the brain. I love that you brought it up because you. Lit I literally wrote down flow. I was going to ask you directly about this. Like, uh, clearly, um, with your background in jazz, uh, the ability to flow through both, right? Like, uh, finding those commonalities, which I always imagined was there, and I love that you brought it up. Which Which started first? Were you, were you playing? Did you get into martial arts first, or were you in? Did you start playing the trumpet first? Um, I I, pro I started with guitar when I was six and I switched to trumpet when I was eight. Um, and I think martial arts came on board. Like, you know, I became interested in it probably when I was nine or 10, you know, like the, the Bruce Lee movies and the Kung Fu TV series. Um, so by the time I was 12, I was in it. I also grew up with, um, you know, like my great grandfather in Armenia was a wrestler and so amongst my family, like fitness and doing push-ups and wall sits and, you know, cracking uh, walnuts in your hand and all these kind of like old school things that I guess it's part of Armenian culture, strength training and wrestling, you know. So I kind of grew up with that and also with uncles that were Marines and in the military. And, and so that whole kind of thing was up in there for me at a young age, being able to, def you know, defend yourself and... Um, you know, boxing, like I, I was really fascinated by boxing, um, not people bashing each other, but the fact that somebody could make somebody miss and then land combinations and make them miss again, like that, that intrigued me. Did you so say... So martial arts came a little later, but they both... I'm sorry? No, I was going to say, did you find in, in your own training, did they stay pretty much along even timelines or did one sort of take over the focus... You know, did, did you spend more time on the horn for a while and then the martial arts tripped off? Yeah, when, when, I got to, when I got to Berkeley College of Music, um, the martial arts kind of went away for a while because it was just, I knew that if I was going to be able to do music on the level that I wanted to do it on, it was going to require like everything. So martial arts, the interest was always there. But I wasn't training. I wasn't taking lessons with anybody. I was just completely focused on music. 
and practicing like just constantly, like constantly practicing playing. Like that's all I did. That went on for about two or three years. When I transferred from Berkeley, I wanted to just leave Berkeley, leave school and come to New York. But my parents never went to college, so I'm the first one, right? So I had to finish college, right? Get that piece of paper, whatever that means. But So I transferred to William Patterson in Jersey. They had a small jazz program. It was 20 miles from the city. So for me, it was like, okay, I can get this piece of paper to cool my parents out, but really I'm going to be getting into the city and trying to get my career going. At that college, they had a kickboxing team. So I went to talk to the guy. <coughs> His name was Malik Abdullah. He was like a Nation of Islam guy from Newark, right? And I'm like, look, I have a martial arts background, but I haven't done any kickboxing, but I'm really interested. He said, cool, come train. And so I went in and trained with these guys. It was real hardcore kind of physical training. I really dug being around these guys because it was just like this kind of team spirit and everybody, they were hard on each other, but it was always in the service of making you better, making you better. So I kind of just really liked the way that these guys train. And so I became part of the William Patterson kickboxing team. Oh, and, um, and, and so that kind of got me back into it, kind of got into Wing Chun for a little while, but it was too dogmatic. At least the place that I was going to was way too dogmatic. First of all, I didn't really dig non-Chinese people being there too much, but it was very dogmatic. And I was like one of these guys that I was asking a lot of questions. Well, you know, Nobody's going to stand there and do this in front of you. Like if it's a boxer and he's jabbing and moving, like how are you going to make this work against the boxer? And I didn't know at the time that that was very taboo, like culturally to ask these kind of questions. And I was shortly asked to, to leave, you know, <laughs> so that was the end of that. And, I, and I, you know, I didn't know. I wasn't trying to be rude, but I was just curious, like how are you going to make this work against like people in the street are going to, the structure of most things in the street is somewhat based on boxing when you see guys duking it out, you know? Yeah. Well, I think your curiosity is powerful. The reason why I was asking about when you started and, 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 you know, if, if one took a, you know, a dip while focus drifted onto, onto the music side is, you know, one of the things I was trying to think about in terms of Kali in particular, but it's really with anything when you're <laughs> young, it is so easy to spend those practice hours, right? To get your 10,000 reps in, to, to really yeah. just, you know, uh, I know as a skateboarder, like however many hours a day, I would just be out trying one trick, two tricks, just hours upon hours, months upon months, just trying to build up competency. And then like, eventually you get a little level of competency and then, you know, you move on. And, and any musician, I mean, I sucked at the bass guitar, but like you spend a number of hours you know, days, weeks, years, you know, a, a lot of the time in isolation, um, just practicing. Yeah. And I think as we get older and, and, you know, I know I've always, if, if, if I, if I got into something other than skateboarding, something else fell aside. So if I'm, you know, when I got very much in, deeply into strength training as a professional, I know my Muay Thai slid like the last year I was at five points Academy. I was helping to teach classes, but I was barely taking classes um assisting guys like i'm not i was not again admitting right. not, not that great at it um i was getting better and more focused on my strength training and and sort of letting my my muay thai slide and but i think even on a bigger scale we get caught up in our daily lives and our, and our schedules whether that's true or our interpretation of what our life looks like uh but also just for many of us, if we're not curious, the idea of learning something new and investing that time to get the foundations of something, we all want to be so good out the gate. And if we have a bad day, a bad class, a bad week, it's like, 
you start to feel horrible, horrible about yourself. Now, do you think that that curiosity, do you think that's something that was in you from the start? Do you think that's something that grew out of music or do you think it grew out of martial arts or where do you think that comes from? Cause I will say martial artists, you know, if I look back at my friends that are like, have been like lifelong martial artists, it's usually been in more than one form. Um, and they've been very open about continuing to learn and progress beyond a black belt, you know, beyond sort of like any sort of determined end goal. It's just about, right. the pro- it's just about the process, right? The process, just- yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, I, I agree with all that. I think that, that, I mean, for me, like my favorite thing is to be a student. I love being a student. And um, I think part of that, you know, music and martial arts, the one thing that I think, I mean, they share a lot of things in common, but I think the one thing that, they, that they're both great at is crushing your ego. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because no matter how much, I mean, I've been playing music all my life, you know, like close to, you know, I think I'm going on like 46, 45 years playing trumpet. I still feel like I don't know shit about playing trumpet. Like I still feel like I still struggle with the same things as you. And and that's just trumpet. If we expand that out to music, I mean, I could live a hundred lifetimes and never learn all there is to learn. It's endless, you know, and so is martial arts. And I think so is any anything of depth. So I think once you kind of like surrender to the awesomeness of that proposition, right, then it's easy to just be able to humble yourself and just to say, hey, I want to learn. I'm going to put the white belt on. And look, man, I remember when I first started like dabbling with BJJ, like, you know, I was getting handled, man. You know, it was like, what is this on the ground stuff? You know, what is this? I don't get it, you know. And then I went to do catch wrestling for a year. I was studying with uh, John Potenza, who was one of Billy Robinson's main students. And it was, you know, but, you know, after three months, four months now, well, okay, I'm starting to be, feel comfortable down here. I'm starting to move. I'm starting to hit some submissions. I'm starting to be able to defend things. I'm starting to get it. And I think so that mentality or that that mindset of openness and also just surrendering to the process and you're going to suck for a while, but yeah. you're not going to suck forever. If you stick to it, you're going to get better. You're going to get better. And to me, that's like the, the real, um, that's the turn on of it is that process, you know, forget about the goal. Like, you know, who cares about, you know, it, it, it is. I mean, always I that. That <laughs> yeah. Right. You know what I'm saying? As a 55 year old, I can say that, but as a 20 year old, it was very much about the goal and achieving the thing. But, um, I, I know, you know some, I get I get caught up in really that now. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I get caught up in that now where sometimes I, I you know, like I, no, I, I come back and I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm always view myself as a perpetual student and whether or not it's even me teaching the class or a course, I always think, what can I do better this one, right? How did I deliver this course? How can I get better on it? And being open to learning from the attendees because some of the best cues I've ever heard have come from attendees or some random you know, you get in a flow of teaching, right? Whether it's in the front where it's like suddenly you see something and you have a solution to something or a way to describe an exercise, a movement, a concept that you've never verbalized it that way before. And that is because it's in your head. And I know I used to marvel 
when these people I would assist would bring somebody in from a room and have them demo and then they troubleshoot and you know what what sort of drills to help get their swing better or their whatever you know movement it better and I'd be like wow they could just do that on the fly and now right. you know like I, now it's it's like one of my most the most fun parts for me is like all right who's struggling with this Let's come on out. And you have, you realize like you right. have ingrained these things. You also start to see, it's basically like, you know, you don't see like a thousand problems. You usually see like 10 of the same problems. And then how do you troubleshoot the 10? So with practice, things get better and they allow right. the mental freedom to flow with it and come up with new ideas. And I think it's the same way you said this, this awesomeness of being in the journey and appreciating where you are, but knowing you're nowhere near the end of it. And, and right, in death, you're right. near the end of it. Like, it's amazing. It, it's, it, it really is, you know, I mean, it, it amazes me that people don't take that mindset. They, they'd be so much happier in doing what they're doing. You know, and, and, and of course, I'm not sitting here saying, like, I'm blissed out about, like, everything I do all the time. Sometimes it's shit's a struggle and you're frustrated and whatever. But, but generally speaking, to be able to engage in doing something in your life that there's always water from the well that you can draw from. That's pretty cool, man. You know, that's pretty cool. And, and that's the human experience because we can always improve. We can always make, you know, I mean, I think when at my age now, not that I'm that old, I, I actually feel really good, but I have a lot of injuries. I have a lot of like wear and tear as a result of all these years of training. Yeah. So now I have to like kind of be smarter. I have to kind of change things up a little bit because I want to keep training. I want to be like 70 and still be going to the gym and, and doing my thing and getting some sparring in or whatever. So I have to train smarter now so, so that I can do that. Whereas, you know, I was talking to one of the boxing coaches today about, he was talking about, you know, sometimes the best thing you can do is pull back a little bit, not don't go to the gym, still go to the gym, but just pull it back. Just like don't do as much and do more recovery stuff and in the long run, you're actually you'll see better results yeah. than if you're always going at it hard, hard, hard all the time. And I said, you know, why did you tell me that when I was like 25? He says, because you wouldn't have listened when you were 25. It's very true. I, I know I don't charge it anywhere near as hard as I used to. And this is for me only going back five years ago um, because, I, you know, it's a different type of breakdown. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 45 now. So we're not super far off in age, but you know, there's a gap. And I am thinking now, like, I'm not necessarily chasing a heavy deadlift right now. I'm, I'm you know, I'm looking more long-term. I'm not, uh, we could, we, I know we've gone, we've talked about our injuries before. You have a much longer list, but you know, I, I still have a cadaver tendon for a PCL on my left. I've had my shoulder done. I've had some back stuff. Right. Um, my feet are jacked. You know, my ankles have been through the ringer, you know, skateboarding and BMX. Um, Fortunately, nothing, knock on wood, dramatic in a weight room. Um, but, like, I do have to reevaluate my goal. Like, I want to be in this process versus caring about just how strong I am. Because I think, and this happens in martial arts too, and I know we've seen this at Five Points, uh, general population who train for the thrill but train like they're going to fight all the time. And Five Points has a great fight team, but there's also like a ton of people uh, at martial arts gyms that train as if they're heading in the octagon, and they're not. Right. And it takes a different type of wear or tear on the body when you're thinking long term, where it's not it's not a life or death situation, and it's not a financial situation. I taught a, a kettlebell cert with Dan John, and you know Dan will talk about his surgeries, and he'll say, "Look, 
My surgeries have paid for my, my, my kids to go to college. My surgeries have bought this house. Like there was a, a risk with the reward and he wagered the risk because his performance was able to allow him these things and he accepted the potential for injury and injuries that came as a result of that. And I think all too often people are just going to the gym thinking that's part of going to the gym or part of going to martial arts because if you're not that intense about it, you're not doing it right. But if it's not going to have an effect on your income, if it's not going to have uh, an overall effect on your lifestyle, other than potentially wearing you down, like there is that moderation part, right? Where it's the consistency of continued practice versus like, can right. I train 150% every time if you're not in a ring? Martial arts can be viewed a little different because to, to a degree, because there could be a real life, life or death situation on the street. But even then, it's more about the consistency than like just, I, I think that's something we all face. And I've talked about that with coaches and with PTs. It's great to actually have uh, you want to talk about that, where it's just people want to go a thousand percent full throttle every time where that right. is how you rack up injuries. Yeah. I mean, I think at least in the martial arts realm, I think that there's a couple factors and, and, and the main one I think has is psychology, psychological it probably is more with men than with women, but I may be wrong with that. But I think that there's a part of people that they want to test themselves. Like they want to know that if something happened, I can handle it. I can, you know, I can man up quote unquote or whatever. There's that testing part, you know? So, you know, that, that UFC guy who's going through that training and who's doing all that stuff, well, he's no tougher than I am. I can do that too, you know, and maybe you can, you know, and I think that there is a place, there is, I mean, I, I've had periods of time where I definitely trained intensely like a fighter, you know, I was, without the actually being a fighter part, I was pretty much doing everything else and sparring and getting bashed up. But you can't keep that stuff going on forever. I think that there's a that there is a um, you know a window or a benefit of doing that as a personal test and a personal yes. growth mechanism. But if it becomes like kind of like almost like a pathology, like an ego thing, then I think that ultimately you don't get the benefit out of it. You become the the person in the gym that nobody really wants to train with. Because there's there are those guys right that we just like you know. I don't want to train with you because it, first of all, I'm not learning anything. Yeah. And if you really want to fight, we can, I mean, I had those words that somebody at five points, like, dude, you want to fight? We can go outside and fight. No gloves, no rules. Let's go right now. <laughs> Other than that, like, I just want to train and get better. And I can't do that when you're being like this. So I don't know if it's just, you have a thing with me, like, but we can switch partners cause this isn't working, you know? And, um, and I realized that it was ultimately it's insecurity. Because if you're yeah. actually confident in yourself, then you want for the other guy what you want for yourself. You want to train. You're, you want to, like, we all kind of agree upon, okay, this level of intensity, this is good. Let's stay right here and let's just work here. But when you got that guy that he, you're, you're doing, like, pad drills and he's, like, like, he's fighting for life or death, like, there's no learning going on. That's for sure. Yeah, you know, in the so, beginning of the, the beginning of the class, when it's time to pair up, and you're like, everybody sort of has their their, their people that they like to train with. Right. <laughs> you know, like you, you could always tell that there's that person that you're like, fuck, I don't want to get stuck with that one. I don't want to get stuck. You know, and I mean, it, it, it. I noticed it being really like an issue in in grappling 
because you are giving people your limbs, you're giving them your neck, you're giving them your joints in compromised positions, and you're trusting that when you when you tap, they're going to let it go, or even like that they're just not going to crank it on, you know? Yeah. That, you know, and there are people that like, you know, they don't respect that stuff, man, and that's why a lot of people get injured, you know. Um, whereas for me, the beauty in grappling is when there's that give and take of flow and you could chain things into another and, oh, you got it? Yeah, you know, I know when somebody gets me when they don't. I know when they got me and I just tap, you know? Or, or like with Muay Thai, you know, you, you, the guy landed a good combination, you nod your head, touch gloves, you keep it going, you know? You start to enjoy the learning process, whether you're on the, the winning or, or losing aspect of it, right? That's, that's part of life, too. I think the older you get, the you get more you realize. Losing that. Yeah, yeah you, you learn more whenever you fail, usually, than if you just win, you keep winning. And, and I will say, you know, when I was looking to get into a martial art, um, coming off a knee surgery, the thing that kept me out of jujitsu was having two joint surgeries. Like I would rather trust some, uh, I would rather deal with someone reckless, potentially knocking me out or hitting me in the head than having another joint surgery. That, that, that sole thread as someone who had already came in having a shoulder and, you know, right shoulder, left knee repaired already. I was like, um, you know, like I'd rather get hit in the face. Right. Um, and hard than, than deal with another tweak. Right. Kind of miss out on that. I, you know, right. I, 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 you know, I have to get out, hang out with Gavin more. I have to, I have to get my, my martial arts game together. I, I maybe held hit pads or a bag, maybe like five times in the last three years. It's pretty, pretty sad now. Um, I do want to take a moment. So let's talk about this. We've been mentioning you as a musician and, and yeah. one of the coolest things I've ever seen happen to a friend of mine is so, uh, listeners, we've been mentioning <laughs> Barry as a musician, but like, you know, Barry came into work one day. Uh, this is now I've been a coach for a few years. We've known each other a few years. This is like 2013. Is that yeah. 2012, 2012. And Barry's like, yeah, I just auditioned for the E street band. And within what, three months later, <laughs> you were in the E street band for how long, how long were you in with them? We did we did two we did two tours. We kind of did like a back to back tour. So we started the tour in 2012 and we finished mid 2014. I mean, and we went everywhere. It was unbelievable, man. You know, it, it was crazy. So when when we're talking about a high level musician, he was in the E Street Band, and I remember you played like the Sandy Hook benefit show in New York. It, that's crazy. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, I mean, Bruce. You know, I had the best seat in the house, man, because the horns were kind of like next to Max's drums. And so we could just watch, like, I just got to watch him do his thing every night, you know, and he's a force of nature, like to see, you know, talk about athletic, right? I mean, for, for somebody to put out, I used to joke with him and say, man, I would love to put a, a heart rate monitor on you and see what kind of calories you're burning during it, you know, because, you know, he does those, I mean, in Europe, we do four hours, you know, because the European yeah. audience hang with that you know here we do like three three and a half tops but in europe you know four hour shows and he's rocking the whole time he doesn't need the stage i mean he's just going man so i mean i i can't even imagine what the the output the caloric output during the show is i mean but yeah it was, it, 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 it was amazing to be able to perform, and, and Bruce has got to be low low to mid sixties in age right now. Mid sixties. Um, he's probably sixty eight. So, so high sixties, performing for anywhere from three and a half to four plus hours on a yeah. nightly basis. That yeah. is insane. Yeah, we, I mean, we would do to be 
accurate, we would probably do four shows, five shows a week tops. Um, <laughs> that still seems like a ton. That's so a ton. Fun. No, I mean, it was grueling. It was, I mean, for me, it was grueling, you know, to play, you know, trumpets aren't really meant to be on your face that much. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it was great. You know, I mean, I, I've been really fortunate, man, to play with a lot of great people. And Bruce certainly up there at the top of the list among like the iconic people. And, uh, you know, look, man, it's, I, I've just been real fortunate. It's not because there's a shortage of, of good qualified trumpet players. There's plenty of great trumpet players out there. I've just been very fortunate in, in that realm. Maybe I have a particular skill set that, that works in that realm, you know, a little better than other guys. Uh, I like being on stage. I like to perform. I can sing some backgrounds. I can play some percussion. Like, I'm very comfortable being on stage and putting on a show. Whereas I think there's other guys that aren't comfortable. They play great, but they just stand there and play. And, and, and gigs like Billy's gig, Billy Joel and Bruce and Sting and Queen Latifah and all those kind of gigs, there's definitely a performance aspect. You know, you yeah. got to look like you're happy, like, you, you know, like you're happy and comfortable to be on stage performing for people, you know. It, it's uh, so if, if Bruce was, I don't want you to name the person unless you feel comfortable, but if Bruce was like the high watermark, was there anybody like super well known that you were like, this is like a horrible human. Don't name the person, but like, uh, yeah, there's a lot. You know, like, unfortunately, are, are, do you find yourself uh, let down more often than not when people sort of achieve that superstar level? Wow, man. You know, that's a, that's an interesting question. I think that if you had asked me that 15 years ago, I probably would have said yes. Asking me that now. I think my view is a little different because I think in some ways people like Bruce and, and Billy and, and people that have really been iconic rock stars for most of their life, really since their 20s, they've been iconic rock stars. They're living in such a different reality than the reality that most of us yeah. live in. So in some ways, it's not totally fair to judge them by how we live because they really just live in it. It's a different world, man. It's a different world where all you're being catered to. You're being, everything is being taken care of so that all you have to deal with and think about is being you. And cause you are the product, you yeah. are what you're sold. You know what I'm saying? And so I think decades of having people cater to you like that, I think it, it, it would change anybody, man. It would change That's anybody. That's a great perspective. That's like, uh, you know, everyone's sort of like in, in Brene Brown, the author land, like everyone's doing the best they can. It's funny when you mention somebody, I've just, I tried that when, when Prince passed away this year, it, 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 I was shocked by how relatively young he was. Right. Mm -hmm. So, cause in, when I think about in, in my introduction to music, like, you know, Prince has been there, you know, MTV is probably the first awareness of like a greater music outside of however, through the radio or our parents, we used to find stuff. Right. right so like, right. I, you know, when, when I think back prior to MTV, my record collection was like Sesame street, rhinestone, cowboy, YMCA, like seven inch signal. Right. 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 And then, you know, Prince has just always been there. And then I realized like he, he was like in his mid fifties, it's like he got started crazy young and again already had this super eclectic style so you know decades at a young age of this and, and hugely prolific yeah uh, incredibly His body of work is just unbelievable man and then you know you mentioned billy joel and billy joel coming from long like for myself coming from long island and i think almost anybody from long island would say 
somewhere in your neighborhood, there's a house that's rumored that Billy Joel lived in it at some point, right? right? right like there was right. literally a house around the corner that people would be like, yeah, Billy Joel lived over there and like whatever. Right. But he has been, you know, I remember him being popular prior to Uptown Girl. Like his earlier right. stuff is the more interesting stuff for me. And that's like crazy to think of like, you know, cause now I'm in my forties. So I'm like, that's in however many of my 40 years, I was aware of what music is. Right. Um, or what a good song might be. He's been there. And I, I, you know, I never thought about it at that duration. Like I always give people credit that like, it's a crazy lifestyle. The pressures are totally different. You know, somebody asked me that somebody at the gym the other day was like, you know, uh, did, did sort of the, the common celebrity fitness thing where it's like, well, if I was getting paid to work out and I'm like, you know, man, I actually think it kind of probably sucks to get paid to work out with that level of pressure when there's like a $200 million movie on your shoulders right? and you have to set an alarm to eat chicken in the middle of the night and that stuff. I'm like, you right. can't, you can't just go out and have fun with your friends because there's like a clause in your contract that says right. if you're above a certain percentage of body weight, you know, you're too fat. Um, and I, guess, I guess that's like a good way to look at it. Plus the wear and tear of touring. I know in my, my small, just flying in and out of a town once a month to teach a course sometimes feels like, wow, that was like super fun and exhausting. Oh man. You know, it's, I, I mean, look, man, you know, touring with Bruce is great, man. You know, I mean, it's like we get treated very well. I mean, it's still like your time, you know, it's, it's, it's work. I mean, that's all everybody. Yeah. We got treated great. Yes. You get paid good. Like it's, it's all great, but you're, you're earning your money. There ain't no doubt yeah. about that. Yeah. But you know, I remember touring in the nineties with, with tower power and we would go to Europe, like, I remember one of my last Europe tours, 21 days in Europe, so a day to the flyover day and the flyback day. We did, like, 18 gigs, four TV shows, a couple clinics. I mean, we worked every night. You know, you, you do the gig, you get on the tour bus, you drive overnight to the next, you wake up, check in the hotel, get some rest, sound check, you know. I mean, that's your life. You're, you're, it's, it's a grueling life, man. I mean, I tell people I play for free. And they pay me for the other 20 hours where it's just like, you know, you're living that road life. I mean, yes. it is fun. You know, I mean, ain't no doubt about it, man. You know, I mean, there's my responsibility. I wouldn't be doing the tour if the financial thing wasn't solid. So, I, so I'm making my money. I know my bills are getting paid. Yeah. So really all I got to do is be on time and play my ass off every night. So for a musician, it's like, Shit, man, that's great. You know, I mean, is it hard work? Hell yeah, it's hard work. It's grueling. I mean, most people would not be able to deal with just the travel part, the wear and tear of that, and then to get on stage and have to deliver every night. But, man, you know, it's a huge blessing, man. I'm, like, really, really grateful to have been able to, to do all this stuff, you know. And, and at, at this point in my life where, you know, age becomes a factor. So I'm not getting those kind of calls from younger artists, whoever the new Bruce Sprint, like Bruno Mars ain't going to call me. I'm too old. He's going to get the young guy, the guy who me, me 20 years, whoever that guy is, he gets the call. So it's interesting now being at the point where you kind of have to make peace with that as well, that, that cycle, that natural cycle that happens. It's, not unlike what we were talking about with martial arts, where you have yeah. to alter your training. Can I go and spar? Like every day in the, sure I can. Will I do good? I'll probably do pretty good. Am I going to pay for it? Hell yeah. I'm <laughs> pay for it. Like twice as much I'm going to pay for it. Yeah, it's so if true. If back in the gym the next day, he's going to be fine. I'm going to be soaking in Epsom salt hot bath for like three <laughs> days, you know. <laughs> well, hey, um, 
Man, I'm going to have to have you back on. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. But one of the things I wanted to definitely hit on on this one is, um, uh, you know, look, uh, we're going to get political for a moment. And in November, the election happened and, you know, Trump won. And for uh, I admittedly was shocked at a lot of in the fitness industry. um, uh, Guys, I'm not looking down on you or women. Um, How many of my friends suddenly were like, just like, a super stoked about it and be with this, like, just sit and wait. It's not going to be a big deal. Now coming from the facility that I was in Mark Fisher fitness, we have a huge gay population. We have a lot of, um, women as well. And while everyone was saying, you know, on, on one side of the fence, sit and wait, we pretty much immediately had people getting yelled at, pushed, grabbed, spit on. Um, and, 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 you know, New York city for, you know, a lot of people look down on it for its diversity. And for a lot of us, we're just part of the diversity. And I'm saying that obviously as a, uh, heterosexual white male. So I I get it. Like I'm not the most diverse person in the world, but like, it was like an immediate thing. And one of the saddest aspects of that, aside from like this sort of long view, what's going to happen was I had more people reaching out to me, uh, looking for Mm self-defense than I ever had. Because this wasn't like a psychological snowflake safe space thing. Uh, And I really, if there's anything I can stress, you know, uh, for this podcast, aside from how awesome Barry is, it's like, if you were on the sit and wait and didn't see it, uh, it was all of a sudden like people were literally, lives were changing. Like there was literally a negative direct interaction on the streets. And it wasn't isolated. It wasn't one or two people. It was like, you know, dozens of friends having instances. So it was weird to be in a part where this wasn't like a millet, like all of a sudden we're going to war and there's this rallying cry. Well, I guess in some ways it actually was, but uh, of like, you know, shit, are we going to get drafted? Are we going to have to go? This was like a very much for the first time I saw in the streets, I need to defend myself and we need to protest. And if somebody needed an action step, because I do think, you know, Kali forms into one of these systems when people would ask me, um, what should I do? And, and Barry and I tried to get a workshop together and it just didn't happen is what would, what would your action steps, if someone's living in that realm of, you know, like they're literally, and I don't mean unrealistically, like they're literally finding or, or getting threatened or yelled at what, what would your action step, the first action step be for someone in that position? Yeah. I mean, I, b- before I get to, I just want to throw this out there about a month ago, maybe a little more than a month ago, I did a workshop at, at NYU um, for the Islamic Center of NYU. They're doing a, a women's initiative, open to all women, not just Muslim women, but women in general, based on what's happening. So I did like a, a an all-day seminar, like a little seminar that I put together that I call Street Smarts. And part of it is me lecturing and kind of giving people mental tools based on threat assessment and like color, the color code that Colonel uh, Jeff Cooper developed, certain things that can help people just develop a mindset of situational awareness that is not uber paranoid, you know, you're not walking around like paranoid, but just simple things that you can plug into your daily thing that will give you a reasonable ability to be able to see things coming, see cues, because there's always cues, and to be able to avoid, you know? And then part two, the second half of it was uh, a small functional toolbox of physical tools that one can acquire based on Kali for the most part, but there was some boxing and and whatnot. Um, 
there was probably about 30, 35 women there. I said at the outset, how many of you have been verbally assaulted to the point where you feared for your physical safety? Every hand went up, every hand. And this was women that were teenagers all the way up to the oldest woman I had was a, like a Pakistani woman who was like somebody's grandmother. She was like in her 80s. And then I said, how many of you have physically been assaulted and more than half the hands went up? I mean, that's like shocking to me. I mean, I, I can't even believe it because like I was raised like, you know, you hold the door for women, you open the seat for women, you never put your hands on a woman. Like this whole notion of like to be a man is to be chivalrous and to protect, not that women, I'm not saying that, like now it's politically incorrect to say this somehow, but like to, to, to st stand up for women, you know, to protect them, you know. Um, how did we get from that to like, some drunken idiots like screaming, you're a fucking terrorist, go back to where you came from, like at a female, at a woman, or, or, they're, or they're picking on elderly men. You know, so, so what this tells us is they're cowards, basically. These people are cowards. But nonetheless, there's a real danger out there. And I think when the so-called president of the United States basically creates an ambience where mocking and vilifying and, and, and even saying things that would incite harm to people because of who they are, that creates, that pollutes the whole, it create, it's a toxin that spreads, you know, and I think that there are sectors of people in this country, unfortunately, that, that are very ignorant and very fearful, and so people fear what they don't know. So anybody that don't look like them, that don't believe like them, that come from a place that's different where they come from, there's automatically this fear thing that can be very manipulated, e easily manipulated. And I think, you know, Trump was very crafty in how he crafted his, his message to target those people. Yeah. You know, well, Abdul is coming to, to take over the country and your wives are going to be in burqas and you're all like, you can't have beer and hot dogs anymore and blah, blah. You know, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but I'm saying that that mindset that, yeah. that toxin is out there. So, you're, you're not exaggerating on that at all. I mean, let, 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 let's be honest, right? Mm -hmm. and, and my Republican buddies, I still love you, or at least most of you. Unless you're racist as fuck, then stop listening. Um, I'm just going to be direct about that. Um, the whole Make America Greater thing is, is MAGA oh. is horseshit. It's literally oh. this, and, and this anti-PCC thing, and, and uh, sorry, political correctness, not the certification that the right. Cabalos teach. Political correctness, in my opinion, yes, it can go too far. We have to be able to, uh, A, let people be, uh, man, just enough wrong to either make jokes and be you know have have there's going to be gray lines where we can all get along right it's when it's hard lined or you have to overthink every step of the way that that's a problem but i think right. some of these people just like don't want to have to think before they throw out an n-word or call somebody you know a, right. a, a name they don't want to have to have that process that that moment it takes to be like maybe i'm an asshole even though i'm just trying to say a joke right it's yeah. like it's like having an old school like relative that's just you know they're not going to change their ways you know they're not in one way racist but they're right. gonna say racist shit just because right. it's like the old america where it was all right it was all right and somehow okay. that's become attractive and i i just that part boggles my my brain i mean what i do now bro is i just i just turn it on them man i just i just call them on their ignorance you know well yeah. 
you know, I'm not going to be politically correct. You haven't read any history. You don't know the history of what, what black people have gone through in this country. You, you don't know the history of Native Americans. You don't know the history of the Muslim world. You don't know what our country has done in that part of the world. You know, look, I'm not an American basher. I think that we are like every other great nation. We're, we're a paradox. We have unbelievable amount of good that we, we've done, and, and we have the potential to do a lot more good, but there's also all this foul stuff, you know, and unfortunately it seems like the people that kind of like that bullyish, who needs diplomacies for pussies? You know, we're just going to tell the rest of the world what we're going to do. And if they don't like it, blah, blah, blah. It's like the knuckleheads I went to high school with, you know, that like type of mentality. Like this is, this is the sign of a great nation. I mean, we went from, you know, I, I don't know, man, it's, it's depressing, but, Nothing stays the same. Everything changes. And I, 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 th- I think this, the pendulum, I think these people have overstepped. And so I think that we just have to mobilize people that, regardless of what your orientation is, what your political... And look, as a, to touch on what you said, I think that this Republican incarnation, they're not the Republicans of my father. Yes, I fully agree with that. Because there's a lot of conservative principles that I agree with, you know, and I think that, th- that there is a, a type of conservatism that I think has, um, has a place and there's virtue in it in a lot of ways. Um, being fiscally responsible and being responsible for yourself and there's a lot of good stuff there, but these guys aren't that. They're yeah. just kind of glomming on to that because that's the easiest thing to get their hooks into Trump and these guys, they're just opportunists and they're just trying to fleece this country. And, and that's what they're going to do. If they get their way, they're going to fleece. We're all going to end up in a much worse situation. And, and the, the Uber wealthy class and all those people are going to usurp more wealth for themselves and, and, and tilt the deck and rig the system to advantage them and to disadvantage us. And I think that what America stands for is the rule of law is supposed to be that, you know, that there's an even playing field and, and then we compete with each other to do good. That's what I think. Maybe yeah. that's an idea. It's a great way to put it. And, I, I, you know, I don't, you know, I mentioned Republicans. Like, you clearly, I have issues with the Democratic Party, too. Like, I just think, you know, like, whenever we're structural about it. And, and, and this year, I would have gone independent other than I don't want to lose my ability to vote in, in a primary because, like, I'm right. quite frankly, right. I'm over it on, on the sides. Um, but, you know, there was a, uh, we were at a, before Kim and I got married, we were at a, at a dinner with a, at, a, at a friend's house. And forgetting where she's from, I, I want to say Indian, but I might be totally mistaken that. But she was never yelled that a, a racial slur epitaph, you know, or, or racially, ethnically attacked until after this election. And she'd been, you know, like in this country, living in Brooklyn for many, many years. And it was like this like sort of odd get out of jail free card that happened. And, and that's where the threat comes. If somebody... So if somebody's looking to find self-defense and, and you know, we'll, we'll give your uh, email uh, or website address shortly to help find out about one of these workshops, what would be a form or, or, or a style or a system that you would recommend, especially if they don't live in New York and can't have access, more direct access to you, or a website they can go? Is there, is there like some place you can refer people sort of on a, on a bigger basis to sort of get that groundwork happening? Yeah, I, I mean, I, look, have, have you seen Jocko Willink's little video about martial arts and effectiveness and what works and what, what do you think I, the best one? I haven't, it, but I do like Jocko Willick. Yeah, it's a short, I, I mean, and, and I, I really agree with all that he's saying. 
Um, I would say that the only thing that would constrain me from saying this is how much time a person has to dedicate to it. And, and when they figure that out, then they can shuffle the deck and prioritize. But I think that if all you're concerned with is protecting yourself from, from lethal force and you don't have that much time and you don't have that much energy or whatever, get a gun, get a permit and go train and learn how to shoot because you know, that's just a super effective way to shut down a lot. Like, you, you know, like, I know that that's politically incorrect in some circles, but you're asking me a tactical question. Yeah. I have to give you a tactical answer that the, um, the time ratio to result with firearms is huge. You know, the, 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 it just is, you know. Now, if we move away from that and move into like the realm of martial arts, I would say that kind of what I said earlier, if you want to be well-rounded, you have to have striking, you have to have grappling and, and the clinching range within that, and you have to have some weaponry. Um, and, and, you know, I may be biased, and I'm sure that there's exceptions to every rule, but I would say all things being equal with striking, you just can't go wrong with boxing, you can't go wrong with Muay Thai. Are there other arts out there? Yes. Are there other arts that are just as effective? Absolutely. But I'm just throwing these out there because sure. I think they're also things that are accessible to people. Yeah. You know, you can find boxing gyms, you can find Muay Thai, you know. And then, you know, the grappling, you know, BJJ, great. Judo, great. Catch wrestling, a little harder to find people, but great. Sambo, Russian grappling, great. With weaponry, I just think that you can't go wrong with Filipino martial arts. I mean, I just think that it's it's super effective. Um, it takes a long time to master, to get at a high level, but you can get functional in a relatively short amount of time. Um, I can't, you know, I have friends that do Krav. I just don't know that much about it. So I can't, I mean, it seems like they've kind of taken a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of this and a bit of that and put it together and created a methodology and from what I see, it all looks like it's all stuff that basically seems to work. It's all functional stuff. So I think, you know, I mean, the other thing is like you have to enjoy doing it. Whatever it is that you choose to do, there has yeah. to be some level of I dig doing this because then you're going to go and train. You know, if it's misery, you're not going to go and train. Well, I think you brought up a lot of good stuff in there. I think one of it is, and one of the problems that I had when I, because again, I'm, you know, not a lifelong martial artist by any ways, by any means, but everybody at MFF knew that I came from a martial arts gym and, you know, it was like, where do I go for a class? And, and, you know, I love that you mentioned time because if you really are concerned about your self-defense, like it's great to go to a one day workshop or to, you know, uh, take one of those, but you really should be investing time in it. Cause it's like investing in your, in, like you're literally in your longevity versus like a potential threat. It's like, you know, your own yeah. insurance policy against threat. Right. Right. And I think people should be aware that if you really want to protect yourself in that way, like then you should open yourself up to finding a martial art. That's something that you can practice and get better at. So you, the safer you will become potentially with practice, right? These things right. Are more baked in than, you know, the, I've been in some like um, quick courses that people have shown and it's just like, you know, you learn a couple of very practical things, but then without practice, repeat that nine months to a year and a half later when the situation arises, are you going to remember how to do like some sort of a wrist lock, you know, whatever that might be that right. I think that's what I was showing like wrist locks at one of these things. So I actually think that's like really practical 
advice to provide to people and to have them hear that from somebody with your background other than myself that it, you know a workshop is a great gateway but you know it's like any other type of skill right you, know, you need to practice on it and most people will go to that course and, and, and not practice and i think that's great and you know i, I yeah. think you bring up the gun thing uh, you know i i have such mixed emotions uh about guns in one end, but I have to be honest, if it was easier to get a permit in New York, um, I do think I probably would own a, own a gun. Like I'm, I'm not that, uh, to the left of that side of the fence either. Cause it is like a life or death situation sometimes. And right. I know people can pull up stats and this might be the most divisive right. moment we've ever had on this podcast. But you know, I think right. if you really are thinking about threat, like people have to talk about threats as in like, they're all true and what level am I ready for? Right. 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 Like none of these things are false, but like how far are we going to take it? And I think right. there is a part of that where that becomes like a realistic option for a lot of people. And then you have to decide just like, you know, if, if that's the right option for you, but I, I don't think you can take it off the table because of the grander issue. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the criminals are always going to, you know, they're going to, I mean, the other thing that I should probably bring up just because I think it's such an important point is, is, one of the byproducts of training is you're not an easy target anymore. You just give off a vibe. Like my wife to this day always worries about me coming home and walking from Journal Square to my house. I, you know, it's not a super funky neighborhood. And I'm always like, and I'm not saying this in any bragging kind of way. I'm like, honey, they ain't going to pick me. They're just yeah. not going to pick me. And yeah, okay, I'm a, I'm a bigger guy, you know, but even without that, it has nothing to do with that. It's just they look at me and they're going to say, you know what, he ain't going to be easy prey. We're going to go for easy prey because that's what criminals do. And there's lots of data on that. and It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with physical stature. It just has to do with how your gait and how you carry yourself and your awareness and all these things, which is something that anybody can learn. But with the martial arts training, that stuff comes like it just comes out of you. Like I can always tell somebody, you train, don't you? You're a martial artist. Yeah, yeah how'd you know? I can just tell by the way you carry yourself. You know, I've had people come up to me and say the same thing. People on the train, are you a martial artist? Yeah, how did you know? I can just I was just checking you out and the way you were scanning the train and just the way you're standing, and blah, blah, blah. What do you study? Oh, I do this, and it strikes up a whole conversation. But it's interesting to me that that comes out. I think, I think that's that. super, super true. I, I know, you know, it's just like in fitness when somebody, somebody comes in feeling all shitty about themselves and then they, you know, they spend three months in the gym they start without even realizing it walking taller, right? They're just starting to feel that, right. that innate confidence starts to come out. Martial arts certainly helps with that. And the body language is huge. Uh, you know, I had a, you know, God bless this guy. I had a social studies teacher named Mr. Henson when I was in MacArthur High School in Levittown, Long Island. And he was like, A, he was bald and was fun about it in a time when people were grown men still had like the hair flaps and stuff. So as a future bald guy, uh, I respect that right, right. Prop, props to Mr. Hanson, but he would talk about like, cause he would be one of the, one of the teachers that would take kids into the city, like to Macy's on the holiday, you know, Christmas, you know, on a field trip. Right. And he would talk about like, if you're going to walk around with an umbrella in the city, you're better off with the long one than one of the short ones, because people are going to look at you different. If where you have your hands and your pockets are out on the sides, where your eyes, like he would talk about these nonverbal cues, yeah. For being, you know, potentially portrayed as being frail or an easier target. And I think that's true because there's enough people in the city or walking around that how you walk does sort of like adjust your chances on the attack lottery um, to some degree. And I think that's regardless of gender. Certainly, I think women will overall definitely have it a worse situation because sometimes it's just straight up. Yep. Appearance. 
for appearance sake. Um, but that's like super true and valuable. Um, all right. We've been on here for over an hour and I've loved it. We're going to have to get you on later on down the line, Barry. Uh, it's been amazing talking with you. Can you tell the listeners where they can find out more or get in touch with you either about music or about, you know, one of your self-defense workshops? Yeah, they, I mean, they can go to my website, um, which is my name, www.barrydanelian.com. There's a contact link there, um, so anybody can email me. Um, and generally, I'm, I'm actually talking with Gavin right now about doing workshops out at his place. Amazing. Like maybe once a month or so, because how I, how I, I kind of have it set up in modules. I can kind of do like one, and it's kind of self-contained, but I do have it set up in modules, so like, once every two months or once a month or whatever, like basically a six module thing that gets people like a nice chunk of tools that they can work on. Um, so I will post that stuff up on Facebook and I'll, I'll send a link to you. And I'm sure Gavin, once we get it sorted out, we'll, we'll put it up as well. I yep. mean, I'm not teaching any classes. I'm in school full time for Chinese medicine, plus I'm a music career playing at night. So I kind of occasionally people take a private or occasionally somebody will call me up and say, Hey, you know, I just need to get, some tools to protect myself. I'm interested in Kali, but you know, I mean, Simon is teaching a lot of classes at five points and Simon's great. We have a different style of teaching. And I think my emphasis is maybe more of the street, like, like that type of scenario, self-defense. Part of it is my background playing in clubs. Like I grew up just seeing shit happen in clubs yeah. and realizing, wow, this isn't how it looks in the gym. It looks much different here I need to adapt, but seeing seeing that and being in those situations and knowing the reality of like you know what what can happen, it kind of puts me in a position to be able to give people that apart from learning a martial art that might take years and years to extract out the nuggets that can be easily adaptable and frame it up and wrap it up and also like a mindset that works for self-defense. Please send me those links. So uh, here's your action step. Uh, listeners, if, if you're one of the people that's really looking to get into some sort of self-defense for yourself in this, you know, hopefully short-lived New World Order, I do believe we're, we're in our version of the Empire Strikes Back, which means Return of the Jedi is happening, which it means at yeah. least we have a long-term, you know, decades before we're at The Last Jedi. Um, Gavin's, these workshops at Gavin's, Gavin Van Black is, is a close friend and mentor of mine. I mean, he's literally, the, you've heard me mention him on this podcast before. He's the, he's the dude who introduced me uh, to the Ultimate Sandbags and DVRT training. Has a, an amazing spot, the Physical Culture Collective, PCC, in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And I'll be sure to say, go that. So if you're thinking about this, keep the eye out for these workshops. Take the modules. That way you'll get consistent practice in. And uh you learn how to like watch out for yourself because a lot of it is like alertness and some simple things because you know you, no matter what you don't really want to get into a physical altercation you know it's you mostly it, about man. avoiding it absolutely i mean that's that's really like you get hurt they get hurt you both get hurt you end up in jail you end up having to hire a lawyer and spend a lot of money defend i mean those are all the that so for me there's only a couple situations where I'm willing to risk all that. It means that my life, my physical life is being threatened, like with reasonable surety that if I don't do something, something's going to happen, or they're trying to harm my, my wife or my, my children. Or for me personally, because of my training, I would feel morally obligated if I saw somebody unable to defend themselves being taken oppressed. 
I would feel obligated to jump in and at least try and stop it. And I know that I'm opening myself up to a lot of shit by doing that. But I just feel ethically that because of my background, I have that burden that I would need to do something. That's just me. Other guys would say, hell no, I'm walking away. But me personally, I would feel obligated to try and help somebody out. You know? you're, um, you're, you're a good human, Barry. Well, you know, I mean, I try to be. You know, Let's face it. A lot of us, even if we we don't have those skill sets, should be trying to help more often. Yeah, and, I get really depressed when I see like somebody's being beat up by three people, and everybody's sitting there filming it, posting yeah. it live on Facebook, and nobody's jumping in to like break it up or call the police. Yeah. Or, you know, it's just yeah, we're, it, it, we're, in, uh, we, we're we, a very uh, we're morally and spiritually suffering from malnutrition, and and all the shit that we see is all ultimate symptoms of that in my opinion well thank you so much so at the end i have i have the guest tell the listeners to die mighty that's my catchphrase can you tell the listeners (laughs) to die mighty barry die mighty man please yeah we we die on our feet we're gonna die they ain't no getting around that one (laughs) you want to be doing what you're supposed to be doing you know Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Great, great catching up and talking with you. Um, and I feel like we, we learned a lot on this one. Listeners, thank you so much as always for listening. Uh, big thanks for Barry to coming on and, and thank you for continuing to listen to this podcast. Or if you're new to it, thank you for hopping on. Please subscribe, rate and review. When I started this, I had no idea how important those, those sort of statistics are. Um, so please, uh, do that. If you're interested in learning about any training with me or any of my courses coming up, visit, visit coachfury.com. And if you want to donate some dough to the podcast so I can continue to expand the network out, uh, please visit patreon.com slash podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And literally even a dollar an episode goes a long way, folks. Um, as always, thank you to the FTW for the metal music and the podcast. Glenn Urieta for the amazing artwork that he continues, continues to produce. Um, Rich Carpenter for making the Die Mighty logo. Uh, and just every one of you that sends me a message, uh, an email, a text, a, a, a comment, a post about something cool that you've gotten out of the podcast. It, it's really great to hear. Uh, it's been a blast doing these. And uh Man, this is the second one of 2018. It's kind of crazy. I think we're at episode 18. So uh, everybody, thank you very much. Have a great week. The Coach Fury Podcast is created, owned, and produced by yours truly, Steve, Coach Fury Holliner for Fury Industries, LLC. Music provided by the FTW. Visit the ftw.nyc.com for band, album, tour, and merchandise information. And the artwork is created by Glenn Urieta. Visit glennurieta.com. That's G-L-E-N-N-U-R-I-E-T-A. Or on Instagram, at Glenn Urieta. Thanks, everyone.